passage that we have come to today is weighty. We will conclude our service this morning by taking communion. It is typical for us to take some time and pray before we take communion. But I wonder whether we might just take a few moments here at the outset before we get into this weighty passage and pray and examine our hearts and prepare ourselves not only for the reception of communion, but also for the reception of the Word. Shall we do that together? Our Father, we pray that you would give us your favor this morning as we look into John chapter 6. May we understand this passage, Lord, prepare our hearts for the table to follow. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. I grew up in a Christian family, a Christian school, a Christian church, a Christian youth group. I graduated from a Christian university. I attended two Christian seminaries and graduate schools. I have taught for many years at a Christian university. And along the way, as you can imagine, I have had many Christian friends who have appeared to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have seen them respond to invitations in their youth. I have witnessed together with them. We have taught the same students. Some of those individuals no longer follow Jesus Christ. I occasionally will read posts from a former classmate who also served on the BGU faculty. He is now openly antagonistic toward any kind of religious belief. And I wonder, how do you account for such individuals? How do you account for a former ministerial student at BJU, a friend and a fellow church member, a man who became an adulterer, abandoned his wife, and forsook the faith? How do you account for another fellow church member, not our church, but former church of mine, who forsook the faith to pursue sexually deviant behavior? How do you account for Josh Harris? Josh Harris was a former evangelical superstar. Harris's 1997 book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, shaped the purity culture and the values of thousands of American teenagers. Harris was the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church, the founding church of Sovereign Grace Ministries. In 2018, Harris disavowed his book, separated from his wife, and rejected the Christian faith. Dan Olinger, who is the chairman of the Division of Bible at BJU, commented recently on his blog about these, quote, de-conversions. I want to read to you a lengthy section of that blog post because I think it really is perceptive. Dan writes, These days I'm noticing a lot of friends who are turning from the faith. These are people with apparent, even convincing, previous commitments to Christianity who now welcome the label of unbelief. I've been thinking about the phenomenon. Why so many? Why now? One possibility, I suppose, is a culturally driven one. That the apparent increase in deconversions is an optical illusion. That there are no more today than there have been in the past. The illusion comes because most of my friends now have and use a personal publishing platform. They live in a culture that encourages, quote, authenticity 
in the form of controversial public pronouncements and the consequent wave of affirmation in the forms of likes from fellow travelers, likes on Facebook, you've seen those. In that environment, deconversions that in another time would have been kept relatively private are now out there for all the world to see. Possible, I suppose. That is, that's one possible explanation. Those survey data seem to show that the number of professing evangelicals is indeed shrinking. He goes on with another possibility, and then he offers this one. For my increasingly lengthening lifetime... American evangelicalism has prioritized evangelism. It's one of Bebbington's four essentials of the movement. Bebbington was a famous church historian. In a culture that values efficiency and effectiveness after the model of Henry Ford, we want to make the process of evangelism foolproof so that any believer of any experience can successfully carry out the Great Commission. So we develop methods and we teach them in little pamphlets in simple language, the Romans Road, the Wordless Book, Sunday School, and lots of others. And Christian parents who more than anything want their children to live without the noxiousness of sinful decisions and eventually to go to heaven, lay that simple process on their beloved ones from the earliest ages. Now, at the age of four or five, any child is going to follow the instructions of an authority figure that he loves and trusts, particularly if there's no real cost to it. Do you want to burn in hell forever? Well, um, no, I'd rather not. Well, what sane person would answer any other way? Then you need to pray this prayer. Um, okay. And the amen is followed by the fervent statement, you've asked Jesus into your heart, don't ever let anyone tell you that you're not going to heaven. Scripture tells us that salvation is a divine work. The Spirit convicts of sin, John 16, 8, and illumines the mind. The Father draws the convert to the Son, John 6, 44. Unless God is acting on this convert, he's not a convert at all. Is it possible that we have a generation of people who grew up in a Christian home or in Christian homes and made a, quote, decision that you'd have to be an idiot to say no to, but have never felt the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and the drawing and keeping power of the Father, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? A generation that today sees professing evangelicals by the thousands engaging in behavior that they find deeply disgusting, most notably abusive sexual behavior, hypocrisy, lack of empathy, and the apotheosis of celebrities with prominent character flaws. And they say to themselves and to their social circles, why am I associating with these people? What reason do I have to stay in a relationship to which I've never had any commitment beyond an intellectual one and in my immature years at that? Of course, it's possible. And he concludes, maybe we should watch for evidence of God's working in a young person before encouraging him to, quote, pray the prayer. Maybe we should show our devotion to carrying out the Great Commission by seeking genuine, not facile, uh, conversions. Maybe we should be God's servants rather than his pushy facilitators in this important work. Maybe we should be less frantic, less desperate and more trusting 
and confident. Good intentions don't seem to be good enough. Those words, I think, are quite perceptive. On the one hand, Jesus indeed said, let the little children come to me. Young people today, I'm not trying to discourage any of you from coming to Jesus Christ. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. But at the same time, Jesus never manipulated anyone into praying a prayer. Jesus never avoided difficult doctrine. And Jesus knew when to let people walk away. Jesus knew that even among the twelve, one would defect. So with that in mind, let's turn for a final time to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, where we are going to see people turn and walk away. In John 6, Jesus has miraculously fed the 5,000. But Jesus knows that many were following him because their bellies were full. But their hearts were empty of any real love for his truth. When the Jews asked him to perform another miracle, a mere 24 hours after multiplying the loaves and the fish, Jesus refused. Instead, he preached that they needed to embrace him as the true bread which came down from heaven. And Jesus spoke in terms that sounded cannibalistic. You have to eat the body of the Son of Man and drink his blood, or you have no life in you. And what Jesus meant was this. Bread keeps you alive for a day, but to sustain your life for eternity, you have to sacrifice the Creator you're going to have to trust in a bleeding sacrifice on a cross in Jerusalem. So we come now to verse 16. And here's the response. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Question. Was Jesus... The perfect teacher. Yes. Did Jesus ever say anything amiss? No. Jesus spoke the exact words of the Father. You would not change a syllable of a single sermon that Jesus ever preached. I am currently in my 17th year of teaching, and I am constantly going back and trying to improve my teaching. From time to time, I've gone back to sermons that I've preached, and I've said, why did I say it that way? That doesn't make any sense. That wasn't clear. Well, that could be improved. I spoke on a panel this last week, and immediately after, two faculty members came up, and I said, ah, did I, what, did I say something confusing there? Would you have said that a different way? Could I have worded that better? I was really troubled by something I said. Well, friends, Jesus never, ever had that experience. Jesus never regretted a single word that he preached. And what that means is that Jesus deliberately, deliberately said things that were difficult for people to understand and digest. 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Does Jesus sometimes call us to preach difficult messages that people will not understand? The answer is yes. God told Isaiah to go preach saying, quote, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Well, that sounds like a dismal preaching assignment to me. So Isaiah asked, how long, O Lord? How long I got to preach like that? And God responds, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. Just keep on preaching. They will not understand. So God does indeed call us to preach the gospel into all the world, even when the world refuses to hear and to listen. And friends, Jesus experienced that same rejection. And so now in verse 61, far from retracting a single word, Jesus just presses on. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus knew the words he spoke were actually offensive. Jesus is not a bully trying to pick a fight with his words. However, Jesus never dilutes his message. If it offended people, well then so be it. Let it offend. I don't think I have to tell you that we live in a world where people are very eager to take offense. You make one false statement and you are branded a racist, a homophobe, a chauvinist for life. Social media is vicious. Cancel culture just waits out there like a crouching tiger waiting to pounce and destroy anybody and everybody. It never forgives. It never considers the context. It never grants the benefit of the doubt. The fact is, we live in a culture where you can believe whatever you want to believe in the interior recesses of your heart, but the cardinal sin, the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the spirit of our age is to ever offend anyone. You're not allowed to do that. I'm afraid that Jesus would have been canceled on social media long ago in our culture. He was not afraid to speak truth even when it proved offensive to people. Would you notice also in, the word, in verse 61, the word disciple. Jesus, or rather John's use of the term helps us understand the problem of deconversion that Dr. Olinger was writing about. When we use the term disciple, we often refer to a committed, born-again, faith-filled follower of Jesus Christ. We use that synonymously with salvation. If you've been born again, then you're a disciple. But that actually is not how John is using the term here in this context. Here it refers to someone who follows Jesus without fully committing They follow because their bellies are full, but they have reservations about truly embracing his teaching. To borrow from Jesus' own illustration, a disciple is someone who is seed that has fallen in the rocky ground or into the weeds. He appears to spring up to life, but the withering heat of the sun or the rapid growth of the surrounding weeds just come along and choke out that life. That's exactly what Dr. Olinger was talking about on his blog. A disciple, in this sense, can fall away. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples 
turned back and no longer walked with him. A disciple, as John uses the term here, is someone who has chosen to follow Christ temporarily, but he has not yet decided to follow him permanently. In John 6, these disciples were interested in three things. All right, let's note them. Back in verse 26, they were interested in food. In verse 15, they were interested in a political Messiah. And in verse 30, they are interested in more miracles or miracles. But these same individuals were offended by Jesus' claims to be greater than Moses and to be the true bread which came down from heaven. They found that offensive. They could not understand that Jesus had come from heaven to give his life as a sacrifice for dying men. If they could not understand that, then how could they possibly understand if Jesus returned to heaven? And that's the next question that Jesus asked in verse 62. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus asked, if you don't believe I came out of heaven, how will you believe if I ascend back to heaven? Now we know that Jesus' ascent to heaven came first by way of the cross. He was lifted up first on a cruel instrument of torture. And the world thought the crucifixion was the end of Jesus' messianic claims. In fact, the crucifixion was merely the beginning of Jesus' exaltation, an exaltation culminating with his ascension, the ascension of his resurrected humanity right up to the throne of heaven. But if the Jews are offended by Jesus' teaching, how much more will they be offended by his crucifixion? That's still to come. Who would have dreamed of such a path to exaltation? Through a cross? We come now to verses 63 through 65. Here Jesus will reiterate a truth that he has already mentioned in this sermon, namely the truth of God's initiative in salvation. Back in verse 44, Jesus spoke of the Father drawing people to salvation. Now, of course, God's drawing people does not abolish their need to believe. Jesus went on to say in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. So go ahead and believe. But again, notice Jesus' emphasis on God's initiative here in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, again, verse 44, Jesus emphasized the Father. And now in verse 63, he emphasizes the Spirit. And there is no contradiction here. They both have the same agenda. God the Father, God the Spirit, they are not at odds with each other. They have the same agenda. 
All three members of the Trinity, actually, are invested in our salvation. Would you notice how Jesus goes on in verse 63 to refer to his own words? The words of Jesus are life. So when you put all that together, God the Father draws people to himself. The Spirit gives life. And Jesus' words are spirit, and his words are life, because these are the words of the Father. These are the words of the Spirit. Salvation is indeed the work of the Holy Trinity. But once again, notice how divine initiative does not cancel our human responsibility to believe. In verse 64, Jesus condemns anyone who refuses to believe. And Jesus knew all along there were disciples who would not believe in the end. In fact, he knew they would betray him. And why does that happen? Well, because in verse 65, the Father didn't draw them. I will not at this point rehearse an earlier sermon except to say that the Bible simultaneously teaches divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Father must draw and the sinner must believe. God's sovereignty and human salvation overrides our inability to come to Him with perfect repentance or perfect love or even perfect faith. God gave us to Jesus. God draws us to Himself. The Spirit gives us life. And that, friends, ought to be a source of everlasting reassurance for us. God is involved in your salvation. Nevertheless, God commands us to believe. And if you're perplexed by all this, then simply focus on God's command. Here is God's command to you. Believe. Believe. It is not your job to figure out whom the Father is drawing at any given moment. Your job is to believe. Look back at verse 47. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes, whoever you are, believe, and you have eternal life. And look at verse 64, Jesus condemns those who do not believe. So what's your job? Not to figure out what the Trinity is up to. Your job is to believe. And so at this point, we have clearly reached a decision point. Will you believe? Why are the Jews coming to Jesus? Are they going to believe? Why are you coming? Friends, are you coming to Jesus for food? Are you coming for a political Messiah? Are you coming for miracles? Are you coming for food or some sort of physical satisfaction rather than Christ himself? Are you coming for prosperity? Are you coming hoping that Jesus will satisfy all your physical needs? People do come to Jesus for that reason. But would Jesus, let me say it again, would, would Jesus even recognize the Christ of the prosperity gospel? Would Jesus recognize that Christ? Are we coming to Jesus for a political Messiah? How many evangelicals have embraced the Jesus of American Christian nationalism, the Jesus of the political right? the Jesus who has come to make America great again, without embracing the Jesus who condemns America and all the nations of the world? Can we embrace a Jesus who rules the nations with a rod of iron, 
and commands the kings of the earth everywhere to repent. What about a Jesus who raises up nations and dashes into pieces while he advances his gospel to the ends of the earth? Can you embrace that kind of Jesus? Do you embrace a Jesus who has come to make an atonement for our sins? Or the Jesus who makes us have great market returns? Or guarantees my Second Amendment rights? Or Supreme Court justices that are conservative? What Jesus are we embracing? Or are we coming to Jesus for miracles like the Jews? Many in the charismatic movement demanded or demand signs and wonders. True salvation, many believe, must be authenticated by miraculous experiences. And if I can really draw out the application, the Jews seem to have this sort of entertainment-driven focus on miracles. What I mean is they want to display a power. Show us the power. Show us a sign. And how about our American addiction to the entertainment industry? There is a huge, a huge entertainment industry in Christianity. And I fear that some Christians get caught up in the emotion of a concert without ever embracing the gospel of repentance. How well would Jesus' discourse in John 6 go over at a Christian concert? How would it be received in Joel Osteen's church? Well, how was it received in the first century context? Let's read verses 66 to 71 to get our answer. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This paragraph suggests that Jesus' crowds dwindled significantly. Let me give you three reasons why I'm saying that. First of all, notice the word many in verse 66. Many, many walked away from Jesus. That is not a few. Many. Now, we're not told how many erstwhile disciples actually left, but it was a significant number. And Jesus let them walk away. Second, Jesus' sudden emphasis on the twelve suggests that not many were left. There is this great defection that occurs. He fed thousands. This great defection occurs, so now Jesus turns abruptly to his most loyal followers and wonders aloud whether even his own will fall away. That reads as if not many are still standing around. Of course, Peter pipes up claiming the disciples could not possibly defect. There's no way. But Jesus knew that even among his disciples, one would fall away and betray him. The third reason I'm saying that many, many people left, fell away, concerns the chronological situation of this text. 
And I need to develop this. We need to spend a little time just thinking our way through this to get Jesus situated in his ministry. Where is Jesus at this point in John chapter 6? Well, when you harmonize the four Gospels, a clearer picture emerges. And I'll just focus for the moment on Matthew. Maybe you're more familiar with it because we spent three years working through it. If you recall, Matthew's Gospel splits in half, right down the middle. Right? In the first half of Matthew, Jesus goes all around Galilee preaching the gospel of his kingdom. Jesus also healed anyone and everyone who came to him throughout all Galilee. We have examples of him healing the old and the young, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, upper class and lower class, those with severe afflictions and those with minor afflictions. Maybe Warfield wondered whether there were any sick people left anywhere in Galilee because everybody just kept coming to get healed. It's a perceptive question. Well, after this spectacular ministry throughout Galilee, are people still believing? Well, understand that in Matthew's Gospel, again, Jesus, is fo- Jesus focused his attention particularly on Jewish Galilee, on the Jewish side of Galilee, not the Gentile side. Now, let me come back to that in just a moment. In Matthew 16, where we come to the middle of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus takes his disciples north out of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there he puts a question to them. Who am I? And Peter answers correctly, Thou art the Christ, the Son of a living God. And from that point forward, Matthew's Gospel just reorients away from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And Jesus reveals for the first time that he will suffer many things, that he will die in Jerusalem, and then he will be raised again after three days, and Peter cannot tolerate the thought, this will never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Well, from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus journeyed back through Galilee, But he is on a long road to Jerusalem where he will be rejected by the nation and crucified. All right? So where does John 6 fit into all that? Well, again, Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus concentrated his efforts in Galilee, but in particular on Jewish Galilee. Once the Jews rejected him, Jesus turned briefly to Gentile Galilee. In Matthew 11, Jesus pronounced woes upon the Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for failing to embrace his many miracles. And then Matthew and Mark also tells us after that, Jesus fed the 5,000. So he's condemning the cities for failing to embrace him, and then he feeds the 5,000, and then afterward he ventures into the Gentile regions of Galilee. And there he heals a Canaanite woman who describes herself as a dog, unfit to come to the master's table. Jesus goes into the Decapolis region of Galilee. This is a Gentile region. And Jesus then proceeds to feed the 4,000. And those 4,000, if you look at all four Gospels, if you put that all together, the 4,000 were a Gentile crowd, not a Jewish crowd. 
So, after briefly ministering into the Gentiles, Jesus at that point turns north and he goes to Caesarea Philippi where Peter makes his confession. And then Jesus just sets his face on Jerusalem. Now put all that together. All right, Jesus, John 6, feeds the 5,000 at the end, at the end of a long ministry campaign through the Jewish regions of Galilee. He has healed, he has preached, and he has even commissioned his 12 to go out and to heal and to preach also. But Jesus knows that Jewish Galilee has largely rejected him. Now, of course, not all of them. Many of them are going to take him up at the city gate in Jerusalem at the, past, at the triumphal entry. But Jesus knows that by and large, Jewish Galilee has rejected him. Chorazin, Bethsaida, these cities have already turned. That's the point when Jesus gives the bread of life discourse. And that's the point at which these people then turn and walk away. And Jesus then goes into the Gentile regions. And then he goes up north to Caesarea Philippi and then heads down to Jerusalem to die. So friends, that is the setting. And that's the third reason why I'm suggesting that the defection in verse 66 was really quite significant. Jesus is about to turn to the Gentiles and then to a cross in Jerusalem. Now, what can we say for Judas? Judas has gone down in history as the great traitor. In verse 70, Jesus describes him as a devil. If the other disciples who defected were like seed being choked out by the weeds, Judas has always been a tear among the wheat. And Judas must have been extremely adept at concealing his opposition to Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? It was nearly impossible to tell him apart from the others. Curiously, when Jesus said in the upper room that one of his own would betray him, the eleven did not point the finger at Judas. That really is remarkable in light of Mark 6, Matthew 10, and Luke 9. The synoptics tell us that Jesus sent his own disciples out on a missions trip. And Mark tells us he sent them out two by two. And Jesus told them to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And Matthew adds that they had authority over every kind of disease. And Luke adds that Jesus commissioned them to preach the kingdom of God. Well, that means that one of Jesus' disciples must have traveled with Judas. Did he observe Judas cast out demons or heal? Did he hear Judas preach the kingdom? We do not know who among the disciples it was that was paired with Judas. But we do know that in the upper room, no one was suspicious of Judas. Jesus said in the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, certainly Judas was one of the many. He deceived everyone, even perhaps by his mighty works. Everyone but Jesus. So friends, if we turn to the question that I began with, the question of apparent affections from the faith, we really have two answers to that question. You have your Judases. They are very skilled at concealing their true opposition to Jesus. They are the many who prophesy in the name of Jesus. They are the many who claim would do mighty works in your name. And Jesus confesses, I never knew you. And then you have your seed that springs up initially, but they don't have any roots because they run in the rock. Well, they spring up initially, and that blistering sun and those weeds just come along and choke out the life. These are the kinds of people that initially appear to be Christians, but over the course of time, they turn and they walk away. And we, of course, need to examine our hearts and see that we don't fall into either category. And Jesus' instruction to you, if you are in that category at this point, is whoever you are, it's time to believe. It is time to believe. Now, friends, I have not preached this message to really unsettle any believer. That's, That's not my point. Although I hope this is a warning a warning to any uncommitted erstwhile disciple and certainly to any Judas who may be in the room. But for the believer, what what is our response? What is our response to a former colleague like mine who openly rejects the faith on social media, posts videos of himself out there, rejecting the faith? Or former friends of mine and church members who are out living a life of sin and don't want to be confronted. Well, friends, should your your faith wobble, all right, when you read of high-profile figures like Josh Harris abandoning the faith? Maybe some of you read his book when you were young and were encouraged by it, all right? At this point, does your faith wobble? At this point, do you have doubts and misgivings? How should you respond? Well, look at Peter's response in verse 68. This is encouraging. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There is someone who took his personal responsibility to believe seriously. We believe. I believe. And where else are you going to go? Friend, if in your heart of hearts... If in your heart of hearts you are looking for no one else besides Jesus Christ, then you are a believer. If you're looking to turn to no one else, you fully embrace Jesus Christ, you are a believer. But what if you have a doubt? What if you lapse into failure or sin? 
What if you deny Jesus in a moment of weakness or refuse to speak up on his behalf? Well, let me encourage you. Would you also situate Peter's statement in verses 68 and 69 in context? I went through all that context deliberately. Would you situate Peter's statement in context? Peter confesses he has nowhere else to go. He's just going to keep on following Jesus right into those Gentile territories and then right up north to Caesarea Philippi. And there he will confess Christ. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he will stumble. He will fall immediately. He confessed Christ and denied that Jesus would ever go to Jerusalem and die and resurrect. And nine months later, that same, nine months later, that same Peter in Jerusalem will stumble again, claiming that he would never deny Jesus and proceed to deny him three times that very night. Friends, a believer can, a believer can have moments of doubt, despair, spiritual collapse. But Jesus knows that Peter is frail. But he also knows that Jesus, in the end, is not the one. Only one of his disciples has a devil. Look at verse 71. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus was not talking about Peter even though Peter would really stumble and deny him three times in the night. But you say, well, didn't Peter betray him? Yes. But friends, Peter's betrayal is categorically different than Judas's betrayal. Peter's betrayal was followed by repentance. By repentance. When you fall, friends, just turn right back to Jesus Christ and confess the words of verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? When you fall like Peter, just go right back to 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is the testimony of a true believer. He always returns to Christ. He has nowhere else to go. So we pray together. As we prepare for communion, it really would be appropriate for us at this point, every last one of us who is a believer, to just reaffirm our faith in Christ. Can you do that? Just reaffirm, Christ, I have nowhere else to go. Father, we confess Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. We confess Him, Lord, as our crucified sacrifice. We confess Him as our resurrected Lord. We confess that He alone can make an atonement for our sins. And as we approach this table, we pray for anyone here, Lord, who as yet does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be the day of His or her salvation. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.